Section 17 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 11, verses 24 to 36. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Behold, therefore, by placing the whole state of the case before the view of his readers, Paul confirms in a more clear and luminous manner the groundless nature of that pride in which the Gentiles exulted over the Jews. The heathens behold in the Israelites an example of divine severity, which ought to impress them with the deepest terror, while in their own case they have a proof of grace and goodness which ought to excite them to gratitude alone, and to extol not themselves but the Lord, the fountain of all love and mercy." the following is the sense of the apostle consider first your former character before you insult over the calamity of the jews for you were threatened with the same divine severity unless you had been delivered from it by his gratuitous goodness consider in the second place your present character for your salvation can only be secured by acknowledging with humbleness of mind the mercy of infinite love should you however forget yourself and exult with insolence over the jews the same ruin into which they have fallen will be assigned as your lot. For it is not sufficient to have embraced at one period only in your life the grace of God, unless during its whole course you steadily pursue the call of your Saviour and walk in the light of His countenance. For it is the bounden duty of those who have been enlightened by divine truth and put on the very armour of light, to have their meditations always fixed on their own perseverance, for those professors by no means continue in the goodness of a merciful Lord, who, after having answered for some time to the divine call, begin finally to loathe the kingdom of heaven, and not to run the race that is set before them. Such ingratitude causes them to merit a second blindness. He does not add each individual believer, as stated above, but compares at the same time the Gentiles with the Jews. It is true that every individual of the Jewish nation received the recompense due to his unbelief when he renounced the kingdom of God, and all called to be believers from the heathens were vessels of mercy. We must, however, always keep our attention fixed on Paul's design, for he was desirous that the Gentiles should depend on the eternal covenant of God, that they might join their own salvation with that of the chosen people to prevent them from being offended and stumbling at the rejection of the jews as if the ancient adoption of that people had been disannulled paul was desirous to impress their minds with terror by the example of the punishment inflicted upon the israelites that they might keep their attention fixed with reverential awe upon this divine judgment for why do we indulge with such unbridled licentiousness in curious disputes but from our general neglect of those inquiries which are deservedly calculated to teach us the invaluable lesson of humility the condition is added if they continue in his goodness because he is not here disputing with regard to individuals who are elected but the whole body of the nation i confess indeed that every abuser of divine goodness merits to be deprived of the grace which is given him but it would be improper to say particularly of any of the pious that god showed the believer pity when he chose him provided he continue in that mercy for the perseverance of faith which perfects the effect of divine grace in us flows from election itself paul therefore teaches us that the gentiles were admitted into the hope of eternal life on this very condition that they might retain the possession of it by their gratitude and certainly the horrible revolt of all christendom which afterwards followed afforded a luminous evidence of the necessity of this admonition for after god had nearly in a moment so watered the well-known world in almost every direction with his grace 
that religion flourished in the whole Roman Empire, the truth of the gospel soon afterwards disappeared, and the treasure of salvation was removed. What reason can be assigned for so sudden a change but the falling away of the heathens from their calling? Otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. We here understand the sense in which Paul now threatens the cutting off of those whom he had before confessed to be ingrafted into the hope of life by the election of God. For indeed, although this cannot befall elect individuals, yet such exhortation is absolutely required to subdue the pride of the flesh, which, as it is in reality opposed to their salvation, so it ought deservedly to be kept in constant terror by the fear of damnation. For Christians, so far as they are enlightened by faith, hear for their assurance that the calling of God is without repentance, but since they carry about with them a body of flesh which indulges in lasciviousness against the grace of God, the voice of divine truth, take heed lest thou fall, teaches them the important lesson of humility. My former solution of the difficulty must be kept in view, that Paul is not here disputing concerning the special election of every individual believer, but opposing the Jews to the Gentiles, and he does not therefore so much address the elect in these words as those boasters of their having taken possession of the situation formerly held by the Jews. Nay, at the same time he addresses the Gentiles, and directs his remarks to the whole body of them in common, among whom there were many believers and members of Christ only in name. Should the question be proposed concerning individuals, how any one may be cut off after he has been grafted in, and the contrary? It can be answered by considering three kinds of grafting in, and two of cutting off. For, in the first place, the children of believers are grafted in, to whom the promise is due according to the covenant entered into with their fathers. Secondly, those are grafted in who receive indeed the seed of the gospel, but it either does not strike its roots sufficiently deep, or is choked before it brings forth fruit. Thirdly, the elect are grafted in who are illuminated for everlasting life by the immutable purpose of God. The first are cut off when they reject the promise given the fathers, or otherwise do not receive it from ingratitude. The second, when the seed has become withered or corrupted, and the danger of this evil threatens all with respect to their own nature, the admonition given by Paul, it must be acknowledged, pertains also in some measure to believers for the purpose of preventing them from indulging in the torpid dullness and sluggishness of the flesh. Suffice it to observe on the present passage that the same punishment inflicted by God upon the Jews is denounced against the Gentiles if their conduct is similar. For God is able... This argument would be cold and lifeless when applied to profane persons, for although they grant Jehovah to be possessed of power, yet because they consider it is shut up at a distance in heaven, they generally deprive it of all vigour and efficacy. But since the faithful, whenever the power of God is named, regard it as a work actually present, Paul considered the mere statement of it sufficient to appall their minds. The apostle lays it down as a settled maxim that God so avenges the incredulity of his people as never entirely to forget his clemency. Thus also, on other occasions, he often restores his kingdom after he had appeared to deprive the Jews of it entirely. Paul shows also, by a comparison, how much easier it is to subvert the present appearance of things than to establish them, how much more readily the natural branches, when restored to the place from which they had been cut off, derive substance from their own root than the wild and unfruitful of a foreign stock. The same relation and analogy take place between the Jews and Gentiles. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. 
for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant. He is desirous to arrest more fully the attention of his readers by professing that he would make them acquainted with a subject still hid in mystery. Paul has sufficient reason for adopting this plan, for he is desirous by a concise and plain sentence to bring this very difficult subject to a conclusion, and would have expected to read the declaration he makes on this occasion. The clause, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, points out the Apostle's scope and intention to be the restraining of the insolence of the Gentiles, lest they be elated in pride against the Jews. This exhortation was very necessary, lest the revolt of the Jews from God should produce an immoderate effect upon the feelings of men of weak minds, as if a perpetual conclusion was put to the salvation of any of the children of men. This is equally useful for us at the present period, that we may know the salvation of the remaining number, which the Lord will at last gather to himself, lies concealed, being sealed as it were with a ring. Should the long-continued delay ever induce us to despair, let us not forget the word mystery, by which Paul instructs us that the manner of the conversion of the Jews will be neither common nor usual, and he thus points out the extreme rashness and folly of those who shall endeavour to measure it by their own sense and judgment. For what is more ridiculous than to consider that to be incredible which is removed from our sense? Since it is therefore called a mystery because we cannot comprehend it before the time of its being revealed. It has been disclosed to us, as it was to the Romans, that our faith, satisfied with the word of truth, may keep us waiting in hope until the event itself shall bring it to light that blindness in part. The apostle was desirous to diminish the harshness of his language by the words in part, which relate, in my opinion, neither to time nor multitude, but convey the idea in some measure. The particle until does not imply either the order or progress of time, but merely so that the fullness of the Gentiles. The meaning, therefore, of the passage is the following. God has in some measure so blinded Israel that the gospel may be transferred to the Gentiles, while the Jews reject its light, and the former seize, as it were, upon the vacant possession. This blindness of the Jews, therefore, is subservient to the providence of God for the purpose of accomplishing the ordained salvation of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles means a large concourse, for they did not, as formerly, unite themselves to the Jews as a few rare and scattered proselytes, but the change was such that the heathens formed almost the entire body of the church. And so all Israel. Many expositors make this passage relate to the Jewish people, as if the meaning of Paul was that religion should be renewed among the Israelites as before, but I extend the sense of the word Israel to the whole people of God, and thus interpret it, when the Gentiles shall have entered into the church, and the Jews at the same time shall betake themselves to the obedience of faith, and forsake their present revolt from the Saviour of the lost, the salvation of the whole Israel of God, which must be collected from both, will thus be completed, and in such a manner that the descendants of the father of the faithful, as being the firstborn in the family of God, shall enjoy the preeminence. I consider this exposition to agree better with the context, because Paul was desirous to point out here the consummation of the kingdom of Christ, which was by no means limited to the Jews, but comprehends the whole world. And in the same manner, Galatians 6.16, he denominates the church, which consisted equally of Jews and Gentiles, the Israel of God, and opposes a people, 
thus collected from a scattered and waste state to the carnal children of abraham who had departed from his faith as this testimony of isaiah does not confirm the whole sentence but merely one member of it namely that the sons of abraham are partakers of redemption if any interpreter adopts the following as the sense of the prophet that christ was promised and offered to the jews but they had been deprived of the advantages of a saviour because he had been rejected by them he drops out of his consideration part of the meaning of isaiah namely that there would still remain a certain number of israelites who after having repented would enjoy the grace of deliverance through the messiah paul does not cite the passage from isaiah with verbal accuracy for the prophet writes and the redeemer shall come to zion and unto them that turn from transgression in jacob saith the lord isaiah fifty nine twenty we need not distress ourselves unnecessarily on this point for we ought to consider how suitably the apostles adapt all their proofs from the old testament to their own purpose and they were only desirous to point their readers to the passages in the original where they referred them to the fountain itself besides in the prophecy although deliverance is promised to the spiritual people of god under whom the gentiles are also included yet because the jews are the firstborn which is declared by the prophet it was necessary that the prediction should chiefly be fulfilled in the posterity of abraham for the scripture attributes to the whole people of god the name israelites because of the excellence of the nation which the lord preferred to all others isaiah expressly says the redeemer will come from zion in consequence of his having a regard to the ancient covenant he adds also that those will be redeemed in jacob who have repented and turned from their transgression the god of jacob distinctly claims some seed to himself in these words that redemption may continue to be effectual in his elect and peculiar nation paul felt no scruple in following the common greek translation where it is said the redeemer will come out of mount zion although the language of the prophet in the hebrew isaiah fifty two twenty he will come to zion suited the purpose of the apostle better the same reason also can be assigned for the second part of the quotation and shall turn ungodliness from jacob for paul considered this sufficiently to answer his view because it is the peculiar office of christ to reconcile an apostate and covenant-breaking people to god and some conversion was certainly to be expected lest the whole posterity of isaac should at the same time perish in one common ruin for this is my covenant unto them when i shall take away paul in the last prophecy quoted from isaiah had briefly touched on the duty of the messiah for the purpose of instructing the jews concerning the great advantages which might chiefly be expected to flow from the establishment of his kingdom yet he intentionally added with the same design these few words from jeremiah chapter thirty one verse thirty three and thirty four see hebrews eight eight to twelve ten sixteen to seventeen paul designedly subjoined in his quotation from isaiah shall turn away ungodliness from jacob because it afforded a confirmation of the point he was discussing his declaration concerning the conversion of the israelites might appear to be unworthy of credit during the confirmed obstinacy displayed by that nation this obstacle is removed by stating that the new covenant consisted in the gratuitous remission of sin for it follows as a conclusion from the words of the prophet that god would have only to forgive the crime of perfidy and other sins in his treatment of an apostate people as concerning the gospel they are enemies for your sakes but as touching the election they are beloved for the father's sakes for the gifts and calling of god are without repentance for 
as ye in times past have not believed god yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy for god hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all as concerning the gospel he proves the greatest and worst crime in the jews unbelief not to be of such a nature as to entitle them on that account to be despised by the gentiles for they had been so blinded for a time by the providence of god such is paul's doctrine that a way might be formed for the gospel to go to the gentiles but they had not for ever been excluded from the grace of god paul confesses the jews are alienated from god for the present on account of the gospel that salvation which had first been entrusted to them might be carried to the gentiles god however is not unmindful of the covenant which he had made with their fathers by which he testified his embracing in love that nation by his eternal purpose and counsel the apostle confirms this by an important and excellent truth that the grace of the divine calling cannot be in vain which is implied by paul's expressions the gifts and callings of god are without repentance the gifts and callings of god mean by hypology the kindness and benefit of the calling of god nor ought this to be understood as relating to any other calling but that by which god adopted the posterity of abraham into his covenant since this was the particular subject in dispute in the same manner by the word election he meant a little before the secret purpose and counsel by which the jews were formerly distinguished from the gentiles paul it must be remembered is not here treating of the private election of any individual but the common adoption of the whole nation which may externally indeed appear to have fallen off for a time but has not been cut off from the root because the jews had been deprived from their own fault of their right to salvation which had been promised them paul that some hope may continue concerning the remnant contends that the counsel and decree of god remain firm and immutable by which he had once condescended to elect them for himself as a peculiar people if therefore it was impossible for the lord to depart in any way from the covenant which he had entered into with abraham genesis seventeen seven i will be the god of thy seed he did not entirely turn away his kindness from the jewish nation the apostle does not oppose the gospel to election as if there was a disagreement between them for god calls his elect but because the gospel was immediately contrary to the expectations of the world preached to the gentiles he justly compares this grace with the ancient election of the jews that had been manifested so many ages before it is therefore denominated election from its antiquity for god passed by the rest of the world and chose this one people for himself from among all other nations when paul says for the father's sake he does not trace the origin of election to the worth of the patriarchs but teaches that according to the form of the covenant which included the seed as well as the fathers grace had been propagated by lineal descent from the patriarchs to their posterity it has been already stated how the heathens obtained mercy by the unbelief of the jews namely god who was angry with the jews on account of their unbelief turned aside his kindness to the gentiles the following sentence these have now been made unbelievers when mercy was bestowed on the gentiles is a little harsh but it involves no absurdity since paul is not assigning the cause of this blindness but only means that god had deprived the jews of the blessing he transferred to the gentiles because the israelites had lost the blessing by their own unbelief to prevent the gentiles from imagining they had attained the gospel by the merit of faith he makes mention of nothing else than mercy 
the sum of the whole is because god was desirous to have pity on the gentiles the jews were on this occasion deprived of the light of faith for god hath concluded them all in unbelief a very beautiful sentence which shows there is no cause why any who entertain the least hopes of their own salvation should despair of the salvation of others whatever their present character may be they formerly were the same as all others and if by the alone mercy of god they have emerged from the depths of infidelity they ought to leave room for the operations of the same pity in converting unbelievers to the truth for he makes the jews equal with the gentiles in their state of guiltiness for the purpose of convincing both that the entrance and access to eternal salvation are fully opened to all nations and classes of mankind there is only one mercy that saves and this offers itself with the same freedom to jew and heathen this opinion agrees with the testimony of hosea chapter two verse twenty three quoted above romans nine twenty five i will say to them which were not my people thou art my people paul does not mean that god so hardens all men as their unbelief is to be imputed to the fountain of infinite mercy tenderness and love but such are the dispensations of the all-gracious providence that the whole human race stands convicted of unbelief and is condemned by the divine judgment and the design of omnipotence in this arrangement is to make salvation depend on his own goodness alone and to bury and sink forever all the claims of merit paul intends to impress on his readers the two following truths that there is nothing besides the mere grace of god in any individual of the human race on account of the merit of which he deserves to have a preference shown him above others and that the supreme being in the dispensation of his grace is not hindered from bestowing it on whomsoever he chooses the word mercy is emphatic for it means that the judge of all is under no restriction from any of the sons of adam and he therefore saves all gratuitously because all are equally sunk in ruin nothing can equal the gross conception of those madmen who infer from this passage the salvation of the whole human race paul simply means that jews and gentiles obtain salvation from no other cause than the mercy of god that he may leave no ground for any one to complain it is an undoubted truth that this mercy is offered equally to all and granted to none but those who have sought it by faith o oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who hath known the mind of the lord or who hath been his counsellor or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory for ever amen o oh, the depth the apostle here for the first time breaks forth into language which arises spontaneously in the feelings of believers from a pious consideration of the works of an infinite creator paul restrains in passing the audacity of impiety which is accustomed to rail against the judgments of god when therefore we hear the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and goodness of god we cannot express how much power this admiration ought to have in repressing the rashness of the fleshly mind for paul after having disputed from the word and spirit of the most high overcome at last by the sublimity of so great a secret can do nothing else than exclaim in astonishment that the riches of the wisdom of god are too great for our reason to fathom their depths should we therefore at any time enter into a discourse concerning the eternal counsels of a merciful father we ought always to restrain and curb both our genius and language speaking with sobriety and without the limits prescribed by the word of god and our disputation should at last end in wonder and amazement 
for we ought not to feel ashamed if our wisdom does not surpass his who being carried into the third heavens saw mysteries that man could not utter nor could he find any other conclusion for so elevated a subject than this humiliation of his own powers the interpretation of those commentators is forced who consider depth to be taken as an adjective and thus analyze the expressions of the apostle o oh, the deep riches and wisdom and knowledge of god meaning by riches liberality and bounty paul i doubt not extols the deep riches of wisdom and knowledge in the lord of glory how unsearchable he expresses the same subject in different words which is a kind of repetition common among the hebrews for having spoken of judgments he adds ways meaning god's plans or manner of acting or order of government he still goes on with his exclamation and the more he extols the depths of the divine secret the more forcibly does he deter us from the curiosity of our investigations let us learn therefore to make no other inquiries concerning the lord but as scripture has revealed them otherwise we shall enter a labyrinth from which we shall not find it easy to make our escape we must here observe that the apostle is not speaking of every kind of mysteries but of those which being hidden in the mind of infinite wisdom he wishes us only to admire and adore for who hath known the mind of the lord he here as it were lays his hand on human presumption and restrains it from murmuring against the judgments of a glorious saviour he assigns two reasons against such complaints and murmurings all the race of mortals according to his first argument are prevented by their complete blindness from examining the predestination of god by their own proper judgment and it is the height of rashness and folly to enter into disputes concerning a subject altogether unknown the second reason adduced by paul is that we have no cause for complaining of god since no human being can boast as if the lord of all power was a debtor to man on the other hand all are dependent on his kindness and bounty every inquirer into the secret counsels of infinite wisdom should remember to confine his mind within the limits of the oracles of god and never in investigating the predestination of perfect knowledge and love advance beyond the barriers of scripture although the lost children of adam as we know can discern nothing in the subject with greater clearness than a blind man in the midst of the thickest darkness yet the certainty of our faith which arises not from the acute sagacity of human judgment but the illumination of the spirit alone cannot be weakened or undermined by this cause for according even to paul himself in another passage who though he affirms that all the mysteries of god far exceed the comprehension of our capacity yet the faithful as he owns have the mind of the lord for they have not received the spirit of this world but of the fountain and author of all good who makes them acquainted with his otherwise incomprehensible kindness as therefore by our own powers we are wholly unable to arrive at a certain acquaintance with the secrets of god so by the grace of the holy spirit we are admitted to a sure and clear knowledge of these hidden truths if it is our duty to follow at present the leadings of the spirit we ought when forsaken by him to stop and take as it were our stand whoever affects to know more than the spirit has revealed will be overwhelmed by the immense splendour of his unapproachable light we must never lose sight of the distinction lately mentioned between the secret counsel of god and his will revealed in scripture for though the whole doctrine of the word of truth surpasses in its sublimity human genius yet the faithful who follow with reverence and soberness the guidings of the spirit are not debarred from approaching the records of eternal wisdom but the secret counsel of god 
the depth and height of which can be reached by no inquiry, is to be considered in a very different point of view. Isaiah 40.13 Wisdom 9.13 1 Corinthians 2.16 Or who hath first given to him? This is another reason by which the justice of God is very forcibly and ably defended against all the accusations and charges of the wicked, that if no obligation is imposed on God by the merits of any human being, it is impossible for any one justly to expostulate with infinite justice, because he does not receive a remuneration. For it is absolutely required that every human being who is desirous to force any one to do him a kindness should be able to produce those duties by the performance of which he is entitled to make such a claim. God, according to this passage of Paul, cannot be accused of injustice unless it can be said, the source and fountain of all Lord does not pay every one his due. It is also evident, no person can be deprived of his rights by God, since he is indebted to none, for who can boast of any of his own works by which he merited the grace of infinite love? This is a striking passage, and teaches us that it is not in our power, by any good actions of our own, to challenge our eternal sovereign to grant us salvation, but he prevents the undeserving by his gratuitous goodness. For Paul shows what men are in the habit of doing, as well as their ability. If we are indeed ready carefully to examine our character, we shall find that infinite majesty is in no respect our debtor, while all mankind stand arraigned before his judgment seat. So far, therefore, from deserving any favour at his hand, eternal death is too slight a punishment for our disobedience. Nor does Paul only conclude that Jehovah is not our debtor on account of our corrupt and vicious nature, but he asserts man, provided he were entire and perfect, could produce nothing before God by which his favour might be conciliated and secured. Because, from the very commencement of his being, the child of Adam is so bound to his Maker by the very law of creation that he has nothing which can be considered his own property. We shall therefore endeavour without effect to rob the all-perfect Lord of his right to determine to do freely what he chooses with the works of his hands, according to his own unerring wisdom. For nothing done by the creatures of a day has made the King of glory their debtors, and the Supreme Being is laid under no obligation to the potsherds of the earth. For of him and through him. This is a confirmation of the preceding opinion, for he shows it is impossible for us to be able to boast in any good of our own against God, since we ourselves are created by him out of nothing, and our very being now consists in him. Paul hence concludes that equity demands our existence to be directed and devoted to his glory. How absurd would it be to refer the creatures, which the Father of all mercy hath formed and preserved, to any other purpose than the illustration of his glory? The Greek preposition here used, I know, is sometimes improperly understood to mean in, but since the more common acceptation of the term corresponds better with the present argument, I prefer to retain it rather than have recourse to a sense rarely used. The whole order of nature is subverted, such as the sum of the Apostle's argument, unless the same God, who is the beginning of all things, be also the end. To him be glory. He now confidently adopts the proposition as undoubtedly proved that God's glory ought on all occasions to remain undiminished. The opinion, if understood in a general sense, will be cold and uninteresting, and its force and emphasis depend on the circumstance of the passage, and convey the following important truth. That our only refuge and tower justly claims to himself entire and unbounded dominion and power, and that nothing besides the glory of the king of kings is to be sought in the state of mankind and of the whole world. The absurdity 
unreasonableness, nay, folly and madness, are here clearly established of all sentiments which tend to derogate from the splendour of the glory of the Father of Lights and the Fountain of all Good. End of section 17